0: Interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking the secrets of success. Welcome to the Private Equity Podcast with Alex Rawlings. Welcome back to the Private Equity Podcast. Today joining us is Cale Skellerud. CRO at Altvia and founder of Scaling Ventures. Welcome and thank you very much for sharing your insights into the private equity industry.
1: Thank you for having me, Alex.
0: Perfect. So, for those don't know who don't know you, Kale, please uh, give us a kind of sixty to ninety second breakdown of uh, of your place. Sure.
1: Yeah. So, currently, CRO at Altvia, and we're a technology platform for private capital markets. So, think uh, something that helps manage the fund lifecycle at private equity venture capital firms. So, raising capital. Deploying capital, doing deals, monitoring portfolios, and then, of course, delivering an LP experience that gets them to continue investing, right? Kind of that virtuous cycle that is affiliated with funds and firms. And so my background is predominantly in software as a service, SaaS, and in revenue and go-to-market leadership. I spent the last 10 years in New York City, where I was formerly the VP of sales at Harry, which is a workforce tech platform catered to hospitality. Before that, I was a consultant. I started my own firm, Scaling Ventures, that you had mentioned, and I was in business school at NYU Stern, and I was working predominantly with uh, Series A, Series B companies that had proven some traction, demonstrated you know revenue, uh, but hadn't necessarily established a repeatable sales motion or more of a, I guess... Uh, traditional sales structure or sales infrastructure. So that that was the the bulk of my consulting work. And a lot of times I was uh, installed by venture firms right after they would park an investment. As part of their thesis, they wanted to get go-to-market going. And I started my career at ADP um, in in direct sales, selling software, uh, human capital management software into small businesses. And then I spent some time too in market research, working for a firm called BMI. They sold uh, market research mostly on emerging markets. So things Things like um, macroeconomics, country risk, political risk, and it dovetailed into uh, twelve industries. And a lot of my work there was with corporate uh, development groups and strategic groups that had to think about glo- growth uh, in a global sense and think about uh, the data points that informed those decisions. And uh, yeah, last ten years. And I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado. And uh, I played lacrosse in high school, and that brought me out east. I did my undergrad at Gettysburg, and then once on the East Coast, I ended up in New York City for was a blink, but it was actually 10 years, and I'm back now in Denver, Colorado, so it's, it's been an exciting time, closer to family, and uh, it's been a very exciting time at Altvia as well um, the last two quarters. Uh, I was and I was brought into Altvia, I should mention, as part of a growth capital injection from Bow River to, again, kind of uh, help come in as, I guess, a portfolio operator, if you will, uh, to help get the go-to-market motion going and, and grow revenue.
0: Excellent. Excellent. So you've seen kind of all different sides of the of the table. And obviously, a lot of your targeting at the moment is targeting private equity and venture capital firms to support them. Is that right?
1: That's it. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting. <laughs> it's like selling to the groups that I used to partner so closely with while also being installed and working closely with, with that audience. So I'm kind of at all seats on the table at all times. It's been kind of an interesting ride that way.
0: Interesting. Well, that's only going to bring more value to, the, to our listeners to be able to get a perspective. So uh, to kick off, what one mistake do you see private equity firms or their portfolio companies making?
1: Gosh, yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I, I think to put it more broadly, I think it's probably an important distinction to, although it dovetails into the conversation around portfolio companies, I think in private equity and venture capital, I think the mistake that I see is just like a, a hesitation to embrace technology, and a hesitation to adopt technology and to use it as something that can create tremendous leverage. There's uh, Hugh MacArthur, a a global head of private equity at Bain, and he has a quote that's been widely used at this point, but he says, you know, when I think about the most manual industries, I start with landscaping and quickly move to private equity, and which is a little bit tongue-in-cheek for sure, but, you know, I think it's interesting because, you know, if you think and financial services is a broad category, but a lot of times you look at hedge funds and groups like that that are addressing public markets, and they're some of the most tech-enabled folks in the world, right? Using really bleeding progressive technologies as it relates to data, machine learning, things like that, to just be smarter and make better decisions. And if you contrast that with you know a lot of the conversations I have with GPs have private equity and venture capital firms, you know the most important valuable piece of technology at their firm is is Microsoft Outlook or Office 365. So they spend a lot of their time in an inbox and a lot of time managing, you know, simple like a list of LPs that's worth $500 million is managed in a spreadsheet so it's it's kind of like wow you know the, this is the world society from a technology adoption perspective has has moved a lot and the industry seems not to have quite kept pace and i think a lot of it is because uh, some of the incumbents have really gone on challenge for the last 15 20 years like their place is pretty competitive and you know you ask a lot of these firms what their differentiation is and it's pretty common that they'll say you know we have a smart team we're well networked and we've got a good track record right? But if they have to really define something in terms of an investment thesis or the repeatability of their thesis with data, they struggle because there's not a lot of technology involved in what they do. So to put it very simply, I would say that you know the big mistake I see is that folks try to address issues with human power. It's like we just need to hire more associates versus thinking about how technology and, and more so data can just give them tremendous leverage that scales up, not necessarily scaling out with headcount.
0: Yeah, that that mirrors a previous podcast that we've done as well with um, talking about digital transformation. It's interesting to hear from the perspective of a private equity side, whereas, you know, the heavy focus on that was about the portfolio companies and how they need to transform. Um, Obviously, you know, you're coming from that kind of SaaS world, which you would say is at the forefront of, of technology innovation in from a mass perspective whereas you know if someone's in there they're like oh you know we're years behind this company and this company we're doing some some incredible stuff but the i think it's really interesting to hear about that right what could private equity firms be doing to to make themselves you know more efficient slicker leaner you know maybe take a little bit of the advice maybe that they are can be or may not be pushing down to their portfolio to drive, drive that technology. So that nicely brings me into one of the statements, actually, I found on your, on your LinkedIn page that in your LinkedIn states that private equity and venture capital firms are on the verge of a, te- of a radical technology-driven transformation. So I think you've touched on it a little bit there, but, but talk to us a little bit about what you mean by that. And you know I think that's under one of your beliefs, on your LinkedIn page. So I'm pretty sure we're going to get a a fairly passionate response uh, on that basis, but, you know, give us, give us some insight to, to maybe what that means. And, and and if I'm a managing partner of a PE firm, VC firm, you know, how do I interpret that? And and what does that mean to me?
1: Yeah, for sure. So then I actually just wrote a piece on this, which was the first long form, if you will, piece I've published in years Uh, and it was titled the digital collision coming for private equity and venture capital. So I think it's perhaps, I guess revolution is the right term, but I think that there's a new era emerging where operators, business people have operated in a domain that leverages very modern, very progressive technology. And they're now leaving those domains to become investors. And so they're going to make use of the tools that they're the most familiar with. And if you compare that with the status quo in the industry, it's just radically different. So, for instance, if I left, if I started a fund tomorrow, right, and I had to target a subset of investors, Right. I would buy third party data sets. I would get access to tremendous amounts of information, very uncommon information. I would use I would use scrapers to aggregate information and I would pull things together and I would use machine into a cohesive database and I would use machine learning to you know, just to, to ex, uh, execute a very simple clustering exercise to say, OK, who are the investors that I'm trying to go after? based on their propensity to invest in me. So let's say I want to start a SaaS fund, right? So I'd go out and get all the data relevant to understanding who the biggest investors are in SaaS, what their exposures are, and just kind of shortlist that from a data perspective. And then I would use very common machine learning uh, to run uh, clustering patterns, things like that. And I would start to tease out the attributes, if you will, that make those investors unique. So the example that we always joke about, it's like, all right, it turns out, you know, if you were trying to find friends, right? Like, all right, turn, you want to go find more friends? Well, let's first figure out what the patterns are of the friends that you have. And be like, all right, it turns out all your friends wear leather jackets and, and ride motorcycles, right? And we would use machine learning type technology to uncover that. And that's very informed now for when I go to market because I'm going to be targeting investors that demonstrate those attributes, right? And it's going to be a very data-driven loop. And then in terms of the way that I actually communicate with them, I'm going to make sure that there's a way where there's a, a, a feedback loop established, right? So when I bring a message out and it's very simple, technology that we're talking about. So first is just like a system of record, which is more often mapped to like a CRM, which is just a database that houses this information and allows you to kind of organize it. And then, as I mentioned, kind of a some type of learning element, which is more often than not underpinned by machine learning, to actually un- uncover what we're actually looking for. And then I would take advantage of like a system of action, just simple email automation to get my message out to the target audience as efficiently as possible. But I would also measure very precisely how that message is interacted with. Right, so what emails are being opened? What stuff's being clicked on? So I can kind of calibrate the messaging of how I'm actually speaking about my fund, to make sure that you know I'm calibrating my messaging over time, and then I would also measure engagement to understand you know who's going to be the most useful person to follow up with. Like if you look at an investor who spent hours with your with your deck brief, and who socialized it with their firm and engagements off the charts, that's where I want to start in terms of my personal outreach because I know that they're high engagement and that gives them a higher likelihood to convert. And that's just one example of how you might, and then you can kind of translate those mechanics into deals, right? Where you'd say, okay, we have a, let's say I, I had my fund going for a while and I understood, all right, this, these are the investments that we've made. Again, I would just go so hard at analysis and, and at harvesting all the data points in terms of those portfolio companies and how they've been performing to understand what elements make those companies unique. And then I would use that to inform how I go after new, new businesses, right? New private companies that perhaps aren't on the radar. Um, and then it's all about, you know, kind of asymmetric access. In that sense, right? Because a lot of the industry is underpinned by investment bankers. And this is another kind of thing that I say that's a little tongue in cheek as well. But it's like, you know, if you ask a firm how they source deals, right? The the metaphor is we get invited to a flea market and we pray to God that the flea market's not totally jammed up when more often than not it is. And we are especially hopeful that we don't reach for the same melon (laughs) because then an auction ensues right? So mechanically, whether it's an investor at the end of the machine or whether it's a deal at the end of the machine, there are a lot of things that you can do to make sure that data does the heavy lifting in terms of actually understanding who you should go after and then using automation to actually streamline a lot of that communication to take out the time intensity so that you're only spending time on folks that are are the most engaged. And we use engagement as a proxy to understand likelihood of converting and becoming an investor or likelihood of converting and becoming part of the portfolio. So tech stack-wise, you know, that might look like a CRM, simple CRM, you know, in, you know obviously Alvia's in this business. So for be it's the Alvia platform. And, and well, some of the things that I just mentioned are still coming along and we're developing those things. But that's just how, you know, kind of thinking about, all right, folks that come from my domain, when they enter into this industry, they're going to be used to those types of mechanics and to those types of things. So and I'll spare kind of a, a deeper dive on the tech stack stuff for now. But just to answer your question, Alex, is, you know, the people like me are coming and people like me are coming from head the hedge fund space where you know you ask them what informed their investment and it's like oh you know we looked at satellite imagery to understand crop yields and then we you know cross reference that with credit card transactions to understand that this commodity price was going to move like that's happening in that space and if you contrast that with private equity today it's like well how do you how do you raise money it's like well i i look at a spreadsheet of you know our current investors and then i call them and see if they want to invest again and so it's just they're operating in a way that's not taking advantage of, of a toolkit that is not only, I would say it's almost kind of table stakes in most industries now. Like it's not even bleeding edge, totally progressive stuff. The really bleeding edge folks are, you know, buying data sets on the dark web, you know, and like it gets out there pretty quickly, but the industry is going to change quickly and the current incumbents are gonna to have to, you know, hustle to reinvent themselves, to be more digitally native and more tech modern, or there's gonna be a real changing of the guard. And so I use the term "revolution," but it could mean a few things, and I guess we'll see here in in short order
0: okay and I think there's a lot within i mean there's a lot within that what I want to target but the the there's a you know, again if i'm i'm sat here as a as a um let's imagine I'm a managing partner of a you know mid market private equity firm we've got three billion a u m and I'm kind of thinking, okay, well, what we've done—we've always done it this way. The, the, the key word that they hear in their portfolio, and they're like, "Absolutely not. We've not always—we have done it this way previously, but we're not going to change." Let's say I'm—I'm I'm afraid to change, and I'm kind sure. of like, "Look, I, I, I embrace the fact that technology is coming." You know, when someone says words like machine learning, it's probably like, "I don't understand what that means." Mm. So, what would—what would be a simplistic? easy move to say, look, if I was coming into a private equity firm right now, you're well established, you're probably against change, but there's an inkling of interest in making some kind of level of technology improvement within our firm to help us. Where, What couple of areas would you begin with? Look, really easy to step in would be firstly, I'd implement this because it's simple. And secondly, I'd look at this you know one of the things I think you mentioned there was a clearly an email and out, outreach cold email platform which is something we use and um, here maybe that's one but you know I'm not going to give driving down that path but what sure. what two would you give somebody as a simplistic way of that that's fairly easy for them to implement and they could probably grab an associate and they could probably make those changes in the firm?
1: Yeah, so <laughs> the worst answer to any question, but often the best one is it depends. Um, I, I think, you know, if, if you're looking at if a firm really has no true kind of system of record, and as I mentioned, because if you think about what a CRM is usually underpinned by, and for those that aren't as familiar, it's a customer relationship management tool. It's really about understanding accounts, contacts, and then the investment vehicles, pools of capital. But it's like those are kind of the core elements uh, that a CRM addresses, which maps very well to the core, like the, the, I guess, elements that are closest to a firm's point of differentiation. It's usually how you raise capital, how you engage investors, how you engage management teams and CEOs and do deals. And those things map very neatly to a CRM. So I would say if they don't have a system of, right, they're still living in spreadsheets. If they don't have a database that says, this is what our network is. This is our network. This is who is involved in it. These are the interactions that we've had with them. You know, that, that's a very, basic place to start, because it's gonna create visibility across the firm. It's gonna make sure that their activities are coordinated. It's gonna make sure that they have a sense of priority in terms of how they manage relationships based on the quality or based on the value of those relationships. And that's really a brass tacks. You need a system of record for the firm so that everybody's on the same page because it's such a network relationship driven business. So if, if that's not in order, and they're very basic CRMs, they're even like structured spreadsheets via like Airtable and things like that, that would be a substantive lift, just making sure that it's consolidated across the firm and that mm-hmm. it's coordinated, right? Because then you can start to really extract the value from the network. So if that's not in place, then that's the, where they have to start because <laughs> that's where people are on totally different pages and uh, operationally, it's, it's just very dysfunctional. If that is somewhat in, in good shape, then usually the next most interesting place for impact And if we look at just tendencies from the market, like you and I, if you have a portfolio of stocks or 401k or anything like that, you step into Fidelity, you step into Charles Schwab, you're not calling anybody to ask how those things are performing. You step into those portals and it's a very consumer centric experience, right? You see your portfolio, you can slice and dice it, you can make trades, you can ask questions, you can do whatever you want. And the bottom line is that that's what's conditioning us as consumers of technology right? It's it's those experiences that we have as consumers. And if you contrast that with the experience of a lot of LPs who are the GP's customers, right? The LPs give money to the GPs to invest. A lot of times they have zero visibility into anything. So it's like, hey, how's fund A doing? Or how are those four uh, SaaS uh, businesses in that portfolio doing? I've been following the news and it seems like this category is really exploding. I want to make sure that we're riding those tailwinds, you know, things like that. So it's a very opaque, very antiquated experience. Um, but LPs, their preferences, their, the way that they consume things is just naturally kind of shifting towards a more self-service, on-demand, technology-driven experience, right? So I would say the if the CRM piece is not in order, like the kind of foundational kind of operating structure of the business isn't in order, then the next place to optimize for is, is for the investor portal. So bringing a more digitally immersive experience to your LPs. A, because it's going to give them the type of visibility and transparency that's going to build trust and make it more likely that they'll continue to invest with you. And B, because that's the stuff that they're used to and other firms are starting to provide that. And they're going to naturally gravitate towards that because what they can't see in real time, they're going to be less likely to trust. Um, And obviously if returns are through the roof, no one's going to ask any questions. But yeah, so I guess just to to recap, you know, a, a foundational CRM, just to understand the relationships and the context and how you're interacting with folks is, is the most important place to start. That'll create the biggest lift operationally for the firm. And if that's somewhat in order, then I would focus on the LP touchpoint, which usually manifests as a portal and making sure that that's something that's digital, branded, and that provides something that's analytical in nature so that LPs can understand how the how the funds are doing, how the portfolio companies are doing in real time.
0: I think, and you made, well, some great points there, but I think a really interesting point is that we are changing the way that we want information and that's happening. I think we kind of see LPs as big institutions and big companies, and therefore uh, we don't see them as people, but the people within those businesses that are making those decisions to invest in these firms are seeing things differently. You know, you no longer have to ring up your stockbroker and ask him how a stock's doing, what's happening, you log into your online platform, you look at it and you can see real time, whether it's up, down, where it's at, wherever it's at. And I think that's that's a really interesting point is that, I don't know, I'm sure there is private equity firms that are they're offering that kind of level of detail and I know investment relations directors pull together that reporting structure. And there's a lot of time spent on gathering data with portfolio companies. And this is probably information that they've already got, you're already aware of, you know where everything stands um, and being able to deliver that to an investor. Um, And when you're doing your fundraise, that's where your differentiating part happens. And this isn't gonna be jumped on. Maybe Carlisle Group probably have something like this. Maybe I'd I'd suggest, I'd hope they already have a CRM, but uh, you know, it's those challenging firms to those businesses where you're in the low middle market, you're battling on day in, day out for for LPs. You're concerned about raising that fund and you're giving that kind of level of differentiation where you're actually gonna get told all the time how things perform. This is where we've got to, this is how we get it. And it's that level of additional service, additional positioning, and it just goes in your you know your deck, which you share with an LP. Am I right in right in positioning it that
1: way? For sure. Cause I think and interestingly, or I guess a more digital first experience. And a lot of it depends on, on the demographics of the LPs, right? Because some folks, you know, you might offer a very digital experience to an LP and they're like, Print that off and and overnight it to me because that's they're kind of a, a different demographic, right? They're not as tech savvy and they're used to consuming information that way. But what I would say is that the worst thing that's very interesting is you have these funds that are emerging that are taking a very technology first approach and it's giving them differentiation that they wouldn't have otherwise had. So they're coming in and it's like, hey, I don't have much of a track record. I was a uh, you know, VP at XYZ fund and I managed this portfolio and you can see the returns, but I don't have like an independent track record. So it's hard for them to sell on that because track record is really king. So they're bringing the actual LP experience to the forefront. And most of the time it's technology that touches that, that allows them to be differentiated. And it's allowing them to compete with the bigger firms, even though they're leaner and meaner, because again, they understand technology and then they understand the leverage it can give them. Right. So in the topics of like fundraising, you know, we see teams of two or three that have the same output from a fundraising perspective as teams of 20. And again, because they're just tech, they're just tech enabled. Technology is leveraged. It's as simple as automation in many cases, you know.
0: driving that through. And um, I'm pretty sure there'll be a lot of any investors listening right now and they're going to be thinking about deal origination. So one of the things that you mentioned was was that side. I speak with private equity firms. If they're not talking to me about talent, they're usually like, look, we're fine right now, but if you come across a deal, we'd love to hear about it. You know, I'm starting to speak to different firms that are doing things differently. You know, off-market deals, are, I'm speaking to firms, that are like, we do off-market deals, we don't deal with investment bankers, we go direct, and that's starting to happen more and more. But I'd still say, you know, 90, 95% of the market is still running through an investment banker, an M&A advisor. And basically, as you mentioned, at the flea market, hoping that they can, uh, they grab the one where not everyone else wants, which may be that it's not a good deal, or maybe they see something else in it. I don't know. But what what do you think that they could be doing on, on that front from a tech perspective to, uh, you know, get ahead of the game?
1: Yeah, for sure. Because I mean, I think proprietary deal flow is the holy grail. Right. And usually, and as you'll hear a lot in the industry, it's usually about speed. Many would say that speed is actually more important than capital. So how do you go about that? And if we use publics because it's a bigger market, it's a bigger addressable market as a proxy for the direction that anything in capital markets is going to move, what do those markets look like? They're fully digitized, right? So you have public companies and you have investors and there's exchanges and it's literally digital. So there's no intermediaries, right? Because that's an inefficiency in the market where the intermediary is actually taxing for that transaction. And it turns out that the internet is very useful <laughs> for connecting markets, right? In, in an almost seamless and highly liquid way. So when it, on the topic of proprietary deal flow, I, I, would, I would encourage folks to understand like, A, how have they quantified their network? and how do they understand the connectivity across their entire network? And then what are the, it's all about data. So what are the data streams that they have unique access to that allow them to find private companies? If we're just talking about, you know kind of traditional private equity, that find to find private equity. Firstly, they have to be airtight on what their investment thesis is. But if you're looking at, what's a good example here? You know, let's just say private, because that software is kind of my domain, so I know it the best. But, right, if you know software, or if your investment thesis is to invest in software companies that have between five and $10 million in ARR and a clear line of sight to cash flow positive in you know a five year timeline and they operate in certain geographies. Like that that would be kind of a surface level thesis, right? You want to probably get down even more granular to really understand, right? Like they have sales teams of between five and 10 and their the growth in recurring revenue is X or Y. And looks like in terms of market share, they have a concentration of X based on a competitive set that is concentrated like why? So get extraordinarily granular. And again, you can't do this unless you can look into your portfolio and you're able to actually take the data and understand what are the sweet spots that you're looking for beyond just the basic and just the general. So the first thing is to get a quantified, real good handle on what type of deals are in your sweet spot, right? And that are actually differentiated for you. And then it's a conversation around, all right, where does information flow around those companies? Right. Firstly, it's just like, how can we get all those businesses that meet some type of criteria on our radar? Right. And it could be as simple as, you know, buying lead lists or buying account lists from, you know, data vendors, something like that. But firstly, you just have to kind of understand in my terms, like, what is your addressable? market in terms of the companies that you that fit your criteria that you could go after? And then how do you cheat? <laughs> how do you get as much information around these companies as humanly possible? Like something that I heard, um, and a lot of times what's what's simple for that is just simple news feeds and just pulling them into something. There's Slack integrations that will surface companies that meet certain criteria. Like There's a lot of vendors that do the heavy lifting of actually harvesting the data and whether they're using bots and scrapers or whatever, but they'll just put together the signals, if you will, for companies that kind of meet your criteria. And from there, you know, the conversation is like, okay, so we have, we're crystal clear on what truly makes the companies unique that we're going after. We've got a good handle on the nodes that exist out there and how we can kind of harvest information on these companies. And that's half the lift, right? So, and and you have to be clever. And and, uh, a data point that I heard the other day that was pretty interesting is uh, one of the best proxies for revenue growth in private companies where the, you know, obviously that data is pretty opaque is the churn rate of their salespeople, Which you can look at in LinkedIn. So if you looked at going to a LinkedIn account, you can see what the headcount by function looks like. And you can see if their sales team is churning or expanding because revenues must be looking good or salespeople are churning because the product's not selling or they're not being successful. Right. So that's a really good proxy. That's not necessarily obvious, but that's available publicly on LinkedIn. So it's usually the data has to do the heavy lifting because other, otherwise you're going to have a team of 50 people in a room cold calling CEOs at mid-market companies that you got off of the Inc. 500 fastest growing companies asking if they need capital, right? And that's just not going to do it. So that, that's kind of one, and, and I, I'm going to try and not go too down the weird way, you know, tacky or tacky uh, track. But another one too is is to uh, <clears throat> is to make sure that, like, let's say you've started to shortlist, you know, you've started to shortlist companies that you've been introduced to or something. But again, this part starts to come down to how are you pulling qualified companies into a thing where they're now squarely on your radar? How do you pull them into an operating model where you are consistently keeping tabs on them? Where you're developing relationships with those CEOs early because a lot of times it's relationship driven as well. So you want to start to build a network of warm leads, if you will, of like, Hey, here are the CEOs and here are the operators that we've spoken to. And at the, at that time, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't right. Like they weren't trying to take any capital. You know, they were bootstrapped, whatever the case may be. But how do you pull them into your world now where you're nurturing that relationship over time and you stay on it? right? And you stay front of mind. And again, that usually comes down to some type of CRM mechanic where it's like, hey, here's a cohort of, of CEOs. We like them for X and Y reasons. We're going to keep an eye on them. And how do you pull that into your operating model so that you have touches out to them and that you're communicating value? And interestingly enough, right, it's usually the same data when it comes to what the firm's up to. And it's just, you know, as we say, old wine, new bottles. And the framing is just different. So more often than not, the communication to investors is, hey, look at our track record which is you know, portfolio performance, fund performance, look what we've done, we've been able to generate outstanding returns, you should give us your capital. And it's almost the exact same storytelling for management teams. Hey, these are the companies that we've partnered with in the past, look at the value creation, look at the returns that we've been able to generate for the founding teams, whatever the case may be. But you want to make sure that it's a data-driven storytelling that's going into the management teams because you know, when, when they do need some capital, you're going to be the first person that they call. So that's like more of like the nurture thing. And then uh, I guess just to kind of recap, the first thing is you have to find an edge and it's usually going to be determined by data and asymmetric access to information. And there's so much internet on the information, it's insane. And you have to be clever to kind of find little streams that'll tip you off that like, Ooh, this fits our investment criteria and be crystal clear on why your investment criteria is what it is and why it's differentiated. And then those companies will be on your radar earlier. And it's again, a game of speed and then have some type of very thoughtful nurturing mechanics for the groups that you speak to, because very rarely you're going to call a CEO and he's like, yeah, actually we're raising a series A. We just haven't disclosed it yet. This would be great. We, we were looking for a $5 million check, right? Like those are silver bullets that very rarely happen. So how do you pull things into a pool of warmed, warm leads, if you will, and nurture those things over time? And then like one last thought there is actually understanding what's yielded your results. I mean, even on like the deal sourcing side, like a lot of times groups will spend like there won't be an analytical rigor in terms of looking at their deal sources. So they'll make simple mistakes like spending all their time on the, on the bank or whatever that has given them the most leads versus spending all their time on the bank that has given them leads that have yielded to closed deals that have generated the best returns for the firm. So they kind of act without a sense of priority or an understanding of what has yielded their results. But again, I said that the lead sourcing thing is, as you mentioned, more common than not. And so it's more about how do you extract as much value and leverage from those sources? And then back to the beginning of our call, then how do you look at that deal source and understand the attributes that make that deal source unique so that guess what? You can go out into the market and find deal sources that look and feel like them because that's what's been yielding most of your results.
0: I think that's all, all really, really good stuff. And I can really relate to. If you think about any any type of business, especially with business services type company, which financial services, business services type companies and executive search is exactly the same. You know, we're looking for all it is, is built on huge amounts of data. Who do we know? Who can we know? How do we know that these people exist? And then being able to keep managing that. And and it does look And anybody who's listening who's thinking this is really overwhelming. And that's a lot of information. That's a lot for me to do. You know, I've got to raise a fund. i trying to manage portfolio companies is to look within your business and think, okay, who this isn't, this isn't your gig and this isn't your space. Who could you give a little bit of this to? Who could you go out there and say, one of you guys, look, can you go and look at a CRM? Can you go and look at how we acquire some data with regards to companies that are this size of revenue that are these industries um, and that are in this country, this area, or have X, Y, and Z? Because that information is, is available and that is out there. And yes, you'll get lost in Google. Yes, you won't, you won't find it on your first hit, you may do, but. continued looking into this area will make you at the forefront of technology quite quickly because we all operate in archaic industries and we all operate behind the times of technology and we want to be using this so i can definitely relate to that It's it's the reason why i get the question of you're in the uk how on earth can you help us fill a position in the middle of nowhere in the us and the answer is is because we have data on private equity-backed companies and we keep that data up to date so we're not starting from scratch we're not starting from the beginning we have this information and we're starting already halfway up the mountain we've just got to go um, over the next half to identify that and also you know technology and i don't need to be in in new york to to place someone in new york or you know we've got searching jamestown at the moment absolute middle of nowhere for a chief exec appointment and uh, you know we've got a big shortlist across to our client because that data and, and the fact that we've sourced it so yeah it does sound daunting and it did to me when I first began that kind of journey and I'm not trying to compare myself to a private equity firm but if we simplist, if we put it simplistically around around data and data generation is just hit the internet and see what you can find but find someone in your firm if it's not for you to, to do that I think
1: yeah for sure and I mean I think nine times out of ten anything that's proprietary is probably data <laughs> in, in the private equity venture capital game you know and I would say too, you know what's interesting like from a, like trying to spin up proprietary deal flow like a very productive step and, and what is some of the most proprietary data that a firm has that a fund has the data on their private companies that are in their portfolio right that is one of their best points of access to very asymmetric, very opaque data. So if you're trying to figure like, hey, we we just raised a fund and uh, it's it's our second fund, same investment thesis, and we want to just double down on what we've done. I would encourage you to spend a ton of time with your existing portfolio and actually because you can go from, all right, we're investing in mid-market service businesses, right? That, has, that pizza pie is, the, is massive, right? That's so big. And if you can actually spend time with your portfolio and understand, okay, what, what were the breakout performers in the portfolio and what were the true attributes, right? It might be something as, as simple as understanding that, wow, this was a repeat entrepreneur. This was his third business. Interesting. So were the other two groups that, that were total home runs. Okay. So now we're looking for mid-market service businesses who, who are CEOed by a repeat entrepreneur. And that takes the pizza pie and shrinks it down here, and so. But that gives you an, a sense of priority in terms of how you go to market. And as we always say, in, in go to market, right? If you Start small to go big, be hyper focused, and the learning will be tremendous. But again, it's it's all about. And even if that's a very manual motion, at least you know that the pizza pie is this big <laughs> instead of this big, where you're just you know calling the phone book. So excellent,
0: excellent. So look, I really appreciate that. And That's some great advice for anyone who's listening to be able to get on that foothold of uh, technology. So. To jump onto the other side of, uh, of your work, kale with actually looking at growth stage and working within growth stage companies, what advice would you give, or what one piece of advice would you give either to a chief executive or a private equity venture capital investor to help accelerate that growth of that growth stage company?
1: Yeah, gosh, it's, it's so funny how connected all of this stuff is. <laughs> you know, Like the macro themes are just so common because for me... The thing at the end of my machine is a private equity or venture capital firm, but all the mechanics are kind of the same For a private equity group, it's either an investor or a deal right And for a growth stage company that's a portfolio company, it's whatever their customers are. So I think it really just starts with getting crystal clear on what the term called ICP. So who is your what is your ideal customer profile look like? And it's probably if you have any customers at that point it's about really mapping and starting to understand what your your current customers look like and what the attributes are that make them unique. And then to take that a step further then you start to think about personas as well and persona meaning someone of a certain function that has a certain level of seniority but in terms of creating growth is usually about about taking the market and i always use a metaphor it's like a tree on a fruit or fruit on a tree i should say and so it's like all right we need to understand what the industry looks like that we sell into and then we need to think about what our ideal customer customers look like and that's the lowest hanging fruit on the tree and so we need to focus all of our energy on acquiring that's, that segment of the market. And then we lift the ladder up and then we acquire the next segment of the market. So it's about having a relentless sense of priority. And I want to say sequencing the market, but that terminology isn't exactly accurate. But it's more so you're constantly focused on the lowest hanging fruit because that will yield the, the quickest conversions. So in a sale, like let's say it's an investment in some, a company that sells something, you know the, the metrics that you're optimizing for are sales cycle. So how quickly you can sell, sell something and contract value. The size, but and this is a funny thing, uh, a professor in business school once taught me that it was like, What are the two ways to grow revenue? And everyone looked around, and they're like, Two ways to grow. Can it be that simple? He's like, You either sell more widgets or you sell the same widgets for more. <laughs> right. I was like, God bless you, you know. So, you know, in terms of accelerating growth in a portfolio company it's usually about introducing a relentless sense of focus on who the ideal customer set is and, w- and the personas that make decisions in those in those uh, you know environments and acquiring that section before you move up so more often than not groups are trying trying to boil the ocean they're like hey we sell this app we want to go after everything and it's like no no focus 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 what's the lowest hanging fruit because then you you know you you win a client there just a simple kind of uh, way to communicate how the momentum builds you acquire a client and that's in the that ideal customer profile set, the lowest hanging fruit. Now you have a case study. And guess what you use to market? The case study, <laughs> right? And that informs all of your marketing materials, all your talk tracks and all of the, how those things go. So I would say my biggest sense of or my biggest piece of advice for anybody trying to accelerate growth is get crystal clear on where the lowest hanging fruit is. And don't stop until you've acquired it and then move on to the next the next rung of fruit, if you will. Makes
0: sense. Makes sense. So my favorite topic is uh, is talent. So, uh, Chief Revenue Officer, I'm sure you've uh, had your exposure to, to good and, and bad salespeople in particular, but just a general overview of the people in, um, in, well, a general overview of people. What are the three attributes that you believe makes a top performing person?
1: Oh my goodness. That's a good question, Alex. You know, I, I think something that has always stuck with me is that if you get talent right, you can get a whole lot of stuff wrong. And I just, I just love that because it's the truth. Talent makes the world go round. For me, I, like if it boils down, I look for bulletproof super learners because I, I be, like I just index purely for an individual's pursuit of growth, and if I know that they're constantly finding ways to consume information and stay current and stay relevant and be a pioneer in their field that they're focused on their, their rituals and their rhythms and what they can do personally to access new levels of performance. And if I know that they can take, you know, uh, that they have moxie, that they have grit, that they can take rejection and that they don't quit. And that there's almost like this obsessive pursuit of the next plane and and trying to always kind of rise. Then I know that they can execute pretty well in just about anything, you know, because they'll have the perseverance to acquire new skills. Cause that's the other interesting thing too, right? It's like, Oh, Hey, but there's an industry learning curve, or, you know, and Gary Vee, he said something, not, and I'm not a huge fan. Some of his stuff I really latch on to. And one of his things is, you know, you can, you can commit to the, the product or the process. And it's like, are you better off? And the example he gives is, are you better off being uh, like, let's say you love cars, but you love sales. You're better off being a toy salesman than you are being a car mechanic, because we should index towards the process, towards the craft. Right, and that that will yield more fulfillment over time. So as long as I know that somebody's committed to the craft that I'm that I'm bringing them into, and that they have those kind of bulletproof super learner attributes, I know that we'll do pretty well because the the notion of learning curves. Like, can we bring somebody from another industry into this? If again they're committed to the craft and they've demonstrated excellence in the craft, I'm not worried about the learning curve because this is just the first of a million learning curves. <laughs> right? If they haven't been able to overcome learning curves or adapt to new industries or adapt to new environments or new market macro conditions they're in trouble no matter what domain they're in because business moves so fast. So that that's my answer. <laughs> I love it. I love
0: the, uh, um, what was the, the, and just to get it right, the super learner, what, what was the exact phrase
1: that you used there? Like I would say, so bulletproof super learner bulletproof just to pull it super all. super That's
0: it. That's yeah. And so like about. the
1: oh, questions I love are, you know, what's a, what's a book that you've given the most to people or what's something that's had a tremendous amount of impact on you that, that was a piece of content that you consumed and how did you use it? Who did you share it with? You know, things like that or, or tell me about it. And I always, and you know this domain better than any, but, you know, just kind of behavioral based stuff. Just so just to understand a time that they got their butt kicked over and over and over and over and over. And like, why did you keep going? Why didn't you quit? You know, and then what, how did it feel when you get to the other side? Like, what did you learn along the way? How did you apply that learning? And that's another thing that I'm kind of maniacal about. It's like, I'm not happy with learning unless I understood, unless I can understand how you applied it. Because to me, that that's where the rubber meets the road. And again, we need to be just constantly evolving, constantly adapting to to be outperformers in any field.
0: Yeah, absolutely agree. I think the people who learn are the people that become the best. And uh, once you stop learning, you feet ceiling, and you've uh, you've you've pretty much done. Because uh, yeah, there's uh, I'm a, I'm a huge believer of that, uh, and massive to do that to that effect. So, the private equity venture capital industry. What what do you what do you love about the industry? And equally, what do you hate or if hate's too much of
1: a strong word, what do you dislike? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. What I love about it is that it's so influential, you know, and, and I keep I keep pulling out. I literally just published a piece, this digital collision piece that, that speaks of a lot of this. So I'm trying not to spit that stuff out verbatim, but I just – that it's so powerful that literally – that industry determines the flows, the flows of capital, the flows of talent in more a lot of cases, the flows of decision making. It influences regulatory environments, right? So it is it's known to be the intelligentsia of society. It's known to be the, the best educated, most credentialed segment uh, you know, in society. So with that comes tremendous leverage. If you can influence that thing just by definition, you should be able to influence all the industries, all the executives, everything that it serves. So I see it as a tremendous point of leverage, not only for society, but also for technology and and just intellectual stimulation, man. (laughs) You know, like it's just an exciting space. I want to be a little PC in this response. You know, what I dislike about it is that it's, um, gosh, I'm just going to let it rip, is that I think in many instances, it's just a, a perfect example of like an elite, guarded, systemically privileged thing that has existed for so long. and what do I mean by that is a lot of the reason, if you ask me why these firms haven't evolved is because it's hyper wealthy people who are getting investments from hyper wealthy people who are their friends and who are their friends, who were their, are their, their kids are friends and their dads were friends and they, some are in the same places. They fly on the same jets. They do all these same things. So the, the connectivity of it hasn't been broken. It hasn't been democratized. And so I think a lot of times there's, there's an arrogance perhaps, that's associated with that um, because I have interacted with GPs that are without question, the smartest person in the room, zero question. And it is, and it is remarkable. I cherish my time with those people. On the contrary, I've, re- re- I've interacted with far more, you know, that maybe for every one of those, there are truly 99 who think they are the smartest room in the room and treat everyone else like they are the smartest in the room and nothing could be further from the truth. And that's the stuff that, that frustrates me, but I also find it deeply motivating because there's a democratization that is going to happen in that industry because people who are hyper-intelligent are going to use non-traditional methods to hack their way in and take it. And that's what I'm the most excited about.
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating industry and I think it does attract both at the portfolio company level, at their C-suite execs, and at the uh, private equity professional, back office professional level. It tracks some really incredible people. There are some amazing, amazing, intelligent investors, amazing CFOs in the in the private equity firms, amazing investor relations people, some of the real top people in their industry. But private equity does carry with it a little bit of a this is kind of an elite and elite. And therefore, if you're in it, you kind of do have that. Not everybody, but some people do have that confidence that they are at that level, whereas they probably haven't invested in themselves well enough to be at that level yet. So I, I completely agree, uh, but yeah, what what a what a fascinating space to uh, to be in. Certainly, what what do you sure. mentioned about learning, what are your influences? Where do you get your influences from? What do you read? What do you watch? What do you listen? Oh
1: my gosh! So I, I usually keep like a backlog. Like I, I try to balance stuff like learning that kind of is like more spiritual, I guess I would say, or, or more kind of psychological in nature, and then I balance that in with macro. And and uh, and then I balance that against like just skill acquisition. So on the on like the spiritual side, I, j- I just read The Untethered Soul, which is extraordinarily interesting. Uh, by a dude named Mickey Singer, highly recommend it. Um, he was the CEO at WebMD, and he kind of just takes him through his kind of spiritual journey. Very interesting book. On the kind of macro space, I rely a lot on biographies for that. So I'm reading Software, which is awesome. I'm j- I just started into it, which is the Biography of uh, Larry Ellison of Oracle, and it's kind of interesting. He basically gave an economist journalist the, uh, like the space to write it, but he under one condition he was able to chime in. So there's always these little footnotes from Larry, which are kind of hilarious because he was just he was a unique human. Um, and then on the skill side, competing in the age of AI, I, I read recently, which was something that was was handed to me by a close friend, and that's had a huge influence on me. And then outside of skill-wide, SaaS methods, Yakov Van, gosh, his name's tricky, but he has a lot of kind of quantitative approaches to SaaS, like the SaaS method in terms of go-to-market. So I I read everything that he puts out. I'm really focused on customer success right now and product management and product-led growth. So I have a backlog. And interestingly, content on like the skill side, usually the best of the best is content marketing from the best of the best vendors in that domain. So I rely a lot on the best SaaS vendors in those domains that sell products into those categories. Like Clearbit, for instance, they have data-driven marketing, data-driven product management, which is usually just a consolidation of all the best of the best in the industry that are, you know, you guessed it, clients of theirs. I'm trying to think what else I've read recently that, that's that's been very impactful. And then I obviously I have like the daily beats, right? Like, and that's my word of advice to anybody. I went in and just kind of pruned all my newsletters and, and that was very fulfilling. <laughs> so don't, you know, if you and it's just like going to market, right? If you try to read everything, you end up reading nothing. So I've Scott Galloway was a brand strategy guy from NYU. He wrote the four he's written algebra of happiness. He was the one that kind of uh, tipped off the whole, we work implosion when they posted their K one. He's a professor at Stern and he has a uh, no mercy, no malice. is the uh, newsletters outstanding. Tom Tungus of Redpoint has a a very SaaS centric newsletter that I read religiously, and then I've got like Axios. I read PitchBook, you know, stuff like that. But I, I I kind of break it into like stuff that helps me operate better because it it helps with my psychology, stuff that helps me understand the world better macro wise, and then like the skills that I need to understand. And those are like the big block stuff that I read, and then I have like my daily beats, which is more about staying relevant with current events. Excellent.
0: That's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff. Uh, lots and lots mentioned there. So. Uh, so thank you very much. So if somebody wants to reach out to you, Kale, someone's listening to this and they're thinking, okay, I need to learn more. I want to speak to you about your current business or you know, just in general, how best do they, uh, do they, do they drop you a note?
1: Yes. So Kale, which sounds like Kajale or is spelled like Kajale I should say, K-J-A-E-L at altvia.com. And uh, I'm always up for talking shop or uh, networking, having these types of conversations. That's what it's all about.
0: Perfect. Well, uh, we'll put that in the in the show notes for anybody to, uh, to reach out to. Well, look, Hale. thank you very much for for joining us today. It's been a really great insight. Lots and lots for anybody listening to take away. So thank you very much for that.
1: Cheers. Thank you, Alex. Sincerely appreciate the invite, man. It's been a pleasure.
0: And as always, thank you very much for for those listening. And of course, if you ever need support with your private equity professionals or portfolio executive hiring, please do reach out to me at Royal Selection. And obviously, please do subscribe uh, to the podcast so you get the next one in two weeks. But until the next time, keep smashing it. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Podcast on www.raw-selection.com.